Can we just give it up for Pastor Jared? This guy's a rock star. He actually carries so much around here that you don't even know about, just making sure things are running in the background, and just such a great preacher, teacher, organizer. He plays disc golf fairly well, from what I understand. Uh, I have not taken him on because I do not play disc golf very well at all, but we are so fortunate to have Pastor Jared on our team, and uh, we are grateful that God has given us the staff that he's given to us. Amen? I know Pastor Jared gave you some next steps and some things that you should be aware of. I saved one of them out that I wanted to talk about personally, and it's something that's coming up in a couple of Sundays on September the 18th. Uh, some of you, if you've been around Lakeview for this last six months or so, you may remember that at the very beginning of May, I spent some time unexpectedly, it kind of came up out of nowhere, a trip opportunity to go to Zambia and speak at a leadership conference. And while I was there, made some connections, built some relationships, and those relationships have continued to develop. And on September the 18th, we are going to be introducing you to an opportunity for our church to partner with the starting of a Wesleyan University in Zambia. And I'm super excited about this. Dr. Henry Smith, who uh, was the, is the former president of Indiana Wesleyan University, lives in Cicero, but he is actually leading this university initiative in Zambia. So he spends a few weeks in Cicero, and then he spends a few weeks in Zambia. And he just kind of cycles back and forth between those. He's built a leadership team. The university is being right now approved by the nation of Zambia and will provide education at a higher education level for those in nursing, those in education, and those in ministry. And we are super excited that Lakeview Church has been invited to be the first partner church for the founding of this university. There are going to be many churches. Yeah, I think that's worth a round of applause. It's going to take a lot of churches to get this university off the ground, but I've been meeting with Dr. Smith when he's here. I haven't been traveling to Zambia every few weeks to meet with him, but when he's here, we've been having coffee together and talking about this, and what's going to happen is our church is going to be paired with another local church in Zambia. They are going to partner with us in helping to fund the university initiative. So they're going to take offerings and raise money and support it financially. We're going to have opportunities to take teams to Zambia. Uh, some of those teams will be work teams. So if you like to just get out there and roll up your sleeves, get your hands dirty and build stuff and make things happen, uh, we're going to have work teams that will do that. But when we do that, the church that we are partnered with will also have a work team at the university. So we will be able to partner with them and build relationships, and we're going to have opportunities for people in our church who uh, have higher education credentials to go over and serve as guest lecturers at the university as it is being established, and we're going to have opportunities to go and meet our partner church in Zambia and do some local outreach initiatives with that church 
And I am super excited about this partnership. We've agreed to partner with them for the next three years, beginning next May. But we're going to launch that partnership September the 18th. Bishop Alfred Colembo, the former bishop of the Wesleyan Church in Zambia, is going to be here in our service on September the 18th. He's going to have an opportunity to share a bit of the vision of this university. And we're so excited. On that day, because you're here at First Wednesday, you get a little sneak peek as to what's coming, we're actually going to challenge the congregation to give an offering as kind of our initial gift towards this university. We've already set aside from our discretionary funds in the global engagement fund that people give to on a regular basis, $3,000, and that is a matching grant. So every dollar you give for those first $3,000 will be matched, and our goal is to give at least $6,000 uh, to this initiative this fall. We're going to collect that offering on September 18th, 25th, and October the 2nd. So you can bring an offering any of those days, uh, and you'll, we'll give you instructions on those days of how you earmark it to go specifically to that. But we are super, super excited about this opportunity, just the chance that we have, again, to just be engaged in the global mission of God. And I'm excited to see how this partnership develops and grows over time, so stay tuned for that. Now, my hope for First Wednesdays is that we can just have just a little more time to be in the Word, um, just to, to actually dig in and go through a, a passage of Scripture that really can help build the foundation of our faith. I think we're living in a day and age where the world around us is forsaking its foundations. And so things that we have held to be true or believed to be true for a long, long time, those things are now kind of eroding at the foundational level. And if we are going to endure in this day as followers of Jesus Christ, we have to build a solid foundation in our lives. And so while Sunday morning, we are trying to make Sunday mornings more and more and more a place that lost people would just love to be. We just want lost people to love to be at our church on Sunday morning. And we want to make sure that it's a friendly environment, that it's radically hospitable, and that we're communicating the gospel. But on first Wednesdays, we're going to dig in deep. And we're going to try to learn some things that will build our foundation so that as the culture around us shifts and changes and turns, we can stand strong and endure till the end. Amen? So tonight, I want to uh, take you to a passage of Scripture, which I think is a really important teaching from Paul's letters, and it's Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to look at the first 16 verses there. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. And while you're finding that on your device, or if you've got one of those old-fashioned paper Bibles, you can find it in there, and... Uh, we're going we're gonna to look at that passage. You can keep it open. We're going to be referring to it all night long. But I was thinking about the fact that as a pastor of a Wesleyan church, one of the most common questions I have gotten in my ministry life, I've been a pastor for 25 years. I know I don't look that old, but I have been a pastor for 25 years, I promise you. Started when I was 10. No, I didn't. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I have been a pastor for 25 years. Over those 25 years, number one question I've gotten in ministry, you know what it is? Is the Wesleyan Church a cult? Number one question. 
because people do not know what a Wesleyan is. And you know how you know if they've never heard of Wesleyan before? Because they say it with a Z. Wesleyan. There is no Z in Wesleyan. It is named after John Wesley. John Wesley was an 18th century church leader, and he was actually a part of the Anglican Church, the part of the Church of England. He, he was rooted and grounded in that tradition, and God got a hold of his heart. In the middle of his religious experience, in the middle of a church which he deeply loved, God got a hold of his heart. He writes in his journal of a night on Aldersgate Street at a meeting where he went in and they were reading from the introduction to a commentary, Martin Luther's commentary. And his heart was strangely warmed. And it set Wesley on this journey of really creating what we know today as the Methodist movement. And you might think United Methodist, well, that's part of it, but, but the Wesleyan Church and the Church of the Nazarene, and there are so many different streams that you can trace back to John Wesley. And, and I was thinking about the fact that a lot of people you know, see Wesleyan here in Marion, Indiana Wesleyan, and then there's like 932 Wesleyan churches in Grant County. And it's like, but what's a Wesleyan? What is, what, what is John Wesley's ministry about? And I'm going to take just two minutes real quick and give you four things that I think are the key components of John Wesley's ministry. And I'm giving them to you not just because I want you to have a history lesson, but because they relate to Philippians chapter 3. First one, John Wesley modeled a life of complete devotion to God. Early in John Wesley's spiritual development, he read a couple of books. One of them was Thomas Akempis, The Imitation of Christ. And the other was Jeremy Taylor's two books, Rules and Exercises for Holy Living, and then Rules and Exercises for Holy Dying. In those books that John Wesley read, he became uh, deeply convinced that the Christian journey required us to be deeply devoted to God. John Wesley called this real Christianity. He said there's a version of Christianity which is not real. It's fake. It's people who claim the name of Christ, but they're not really committed. They're not really sold out. They're not really devoted. They have fake Christianity, but real Christianity is when you're all in. You don't hold anything back, and Wesley was committed to that. Wesley was also committed to this evangelistic fervor. John Wesley uh, was a man who, because of his preaching and commitment to reach people who had not heard the gospel, the, the, they wouldn't come to the church. They wouldn't come inside the building. Those buildings, you know, those cathedrals, beautiful and ornate, and all these people who would work in the mines wouldn't come in. It was just too formal, too rigid, too religious. And, and so John Wesley said, what am I supposed to do? I can't confine the mission to my church. I can't expect people to come into my church to find Jesus. So I'm going to have to leave the four walls of this building and go preach out in the field. Now, you got to understand something. John Wesley thought this was a, just a crazy idea, right? I mean, he's like, I don't like this. This is not something I want to do. But those people need to hear. So I'm going to go out there and tell them. Now, here's the thing about Wesley. 
he traveled a ridiculous amount of miles. I mean, we're talking tens of thousands of miles. And this is not get on a plane, not drive in a car. This is horseback and by foot. And he traveled all over the place. Every year of his ministry, he preached 600 sermons a year. Out of all of the sermons he preached, to every, every one sermon he preached on holiness, which was John Wesley's major theological contribution to the church, he preached three messages leading people to salvation. Why? Because he believed that that was the key for people to find a relationship with Jesus Christ. He had this evangelistic fervor, which is why when he gives ministers rules about how they're supposed to conduct themselves, he says to them in one of the rules, you have nothing to do but save souls. Which, by the way, this is why we have made a shift this fall that every Sunday, moving forward, we are going to give people an opportunity to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ and begin a relationship with him. We are going to be an evangelistic church. We want to see people coming to faith on a regular basis because we have nothing to do but save souls. Right? That's our job. So, Wesley, complete commitment to God, evangelistic fervor. But he didn't stop with evangelism. He believed in the importance of discipleship. So he took all these people that he was preaching to in the fields, and he said, guys, we need to get you in small groups. He called them classes. He said, guys, you need to get in a class of six to ten people, and, and then they held each other accountable. And the accountability questions were intense. Like, what, what sins have you committed this week? And what temptations did you face this week that you didn't give into? What temptations did you face that you did give into? And then at the end of all of those really personal, intimate questions, the question came, which ones of these have you lied to us about? It was like, we're getting serious about our faith here. We're going to grow in our faith. We're going to be discipled. And then these classes were formed into bigger groups, collections of classes called societies. Because Wesley was committed not just to reaching people for Jesus, but for act to actually help them grow in their faith and become like Christ. And so he gave them a method by which they could grow in their discipleship, which is why the movement is called Methodist. Because he gave them a method. Last thing about Wesley, and then we're going to get to the passage, I promise, and I will go faster. Last thing Wesley did is Wesley really contributed to the church this idea of what he called goal-oriented Christianity. Wesley believed that there was a problem that people had. They would come to faith and they might get baptized and then they would believe that their faith really resided behind them. That it was an event that happened in the past that they were now just living in. And John Wesley said, I don't think that's the way faith works because when, when Christ lays out the journey of faith, he's called us to something. Not just to have an experience in our past that we can point back to and say, see what happened back there? But that we are moving forward in to what God has called us to. And for Wesley, this was nothing short of heaven. He called it glory. 
He said, our, our goal is glory. We are going there, and we're going to spend an eternity in the presence of God. And this wasn't for Wesley about getting a mansion and streets of gold and all the food you can eat. It wasn't about that. For Wesley, it was about being in the presence of God. And Wesley said, it's not just that God saved you, it's that he's calling you to keep growing and journeying with him and developing a relationship because one day you're going to spend an eternity in his presence in relationship. So, complete devotion, evangelistic fervor, the importance of discipleship and goal-oriented Christianity. Why in the world do we start with that? Because I think Philippians chapter 3 includes all of those things. And we're going to look at this passage together. So if you have your Bible, I would encourage you to turn with me. Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to start reading in verse 1. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. Though I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew If there ever was one, I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, So that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection. But I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I've not achieved it. But I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past And looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling me. Let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. If you disagree on some point, I believe God will make it plain to you. But we must hold on to the progress we have already made. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Can we just pray together, and then we're going to dig into this passage. God, uh, for these few moments that we spend unpacking your word together, would you just open our ears, not just so we can hear and learn something intellectually, but would you open our hearts 
that we might receive your word deep in the soil of our soul. Let it be like seeds planted in freshly tilled soil. And let your word put down root in our lives. Let it grow up and produce fruit that brings glory and honor to your name. And for all that you do, we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there are a few things I want to just point out from this passage of Scripture. And I'm going to just use some terms tonight because we're, we're just in a, this is, we're getting, building the foundation, right? It's a little bit deeper tonight. So, uh, first thing I want you to see from this passage, our justification, there's a big fancy word, I'll explain it in a minute. Our justification is about relationship, not religion. So let's start with the word justification. What does that mean? Well, we talk about it a lot around here that as human beings, we are born and we live as sinful people. We're off target. We miss the mark that God has aimed us towards. And because we're not on the path that God has for us, we are not right with God. There is a relationship that has been broken. And what it means for us to be justified is for God to work in our lives and make that relationship right again. So where we were missing, because we were on a different path that, that the one from the one God is on, what God does for us is he puts us on the right path so that we're right with God and that relationship is restored again. That's what justification is. So when we talk about being made right with God, sometimes we think that our being made right with God is about what we do. And, and that's what I would call religion. Right? I go to church, I pay my tithe, I pay my taxes, I help my next door neighbor when they need their snow shoveled. Right? And we, we kind of list out like good deeds that if we do enough of them, then we are good enough to somehow get ourselves back on the right path. But the Christian faith is not actually about religion. It's about relationship. The, the entirety of the Bible is built on that premise. When God made Adam and Eve and put them in the garden, he did not put them in the garden and say, okay, guys, I just am going to need you to do 800 things exactly right, and then we can connect. He just put them in the garden and said, this is for you. I just need you to not do these two things, right? A really short list. He, he, he was showing us parents how to do it, right? Just keep the list short and simple because the kids won't get it if we make the list too long, right? So he just gives them a short list. And of course, they break the rules. But, but what happens when the rules are broken? It's not that they got to work harder now to get right with God. God just wants to restore the relationship, right? Because it's all about relationship. Paul talks about this in this passage, and we're going to kind of just walk through a few of these ideas here. So uh, if you look at the first few verses, therefore, we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. Look at this next phrase. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. It's not our work. It's his work for us. We put no confidence in human effort. Though I could have confidence, Paul says, in my own effort, if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reasons for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. And then he goes out to kind of set out his resume. 
And if you're not familiar with kind of the Jewish standards, you might miss what he's doing here. He's saying, listen, I was circumcised on the eighth day. That's exactly what the law prescribes. I am from the nation of Israel. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I am the best Hebrew that's ever lived, basically. Right? And then he goes on to say, and not only am I a Hebrew of Hebrews, but I am actually part of the Pharisees. And we maintain strict obedience of the law. And when it comes to that, just so you know, I've been perfect. I mean, this is Paul talking, right? And he's laying out his resume and he's saying, it's stellar. But he's also admitting the fact that even though every single one of those things is true, he doesn't put confidence in that. Because his work, as good as it is, is not good enough. That's why it can't be based on religion. It has to be based on something else. Because Paul is as good as it gets, and it's not good enough. There is no amount of work that you can do that will make you right with God. So Paul goes on, and he says, I once thought all of these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so I could gain Christ and become one with him. Hear the relationship terms? I want to become, I want to know him. I want to become one with him because that's where life is found, not in religion, but in relationship. He goes on to say, I no longer count my own righteousness through obeying the law. I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. Now, we're not going to have time to unpack all these next things. I'm just going to go through them real quick. But if you dig into this passage, you'll see that there's kind of some comparisons that Paul's making. For example, he compares confidence in self versus confidence in Christ. He says, I don't put confidence in my own human effort. I put confidence in what Christ has done. He goes on to say that it's not about personal profit, right? It's not about what I get out of this. Like, look at my resume. I've tallied the sheet. I won. I mean, that's really what he's doing in those verses where he's kind of giving us all those stuff. He's saying, guys, on the tally sheet, I'm the winner. I am Tom Brady. I mean, that's basically what he's saying, right? Um, and, and, but then he says, but that's not, I count all of that as trash. In fact, the word he uses there is actually a stronger word. It's, it's like he's saying, I count it all as crap. And if we weren't in church, maybe even a stronger word yet. But, but, but I mean, it literally is the word. He says, it's like a pile of dung. All this stuff that gets counted up for personal profit, it's just garbage. It's crap compared to what? Knowing Christ. It all comes back to that whole idea. He says it's not about my work. It's about Christ's work. He actually says, I don't consider my righteousness that comes by obeying the law. Remember, he's a Pharisee. And he says, according to the law, I'm faultless. But he says, it's not about that. It's about Christ's work, what he has done on the cross for us. And ultimately what Paul is saying is, you cannot have pride in yourself because you're not that good. 
So you can't ever boast. You can't ever come and say, look at how good I am. I'm thankful I'm not wicked like those other people. Right? He just says, no, you have to come with this humility that says, I can only be right with God because God has made a way for me to be right with him. I, this is nothing to do with me. It's everything to do with him. And I want to just say that to you tonight because it's important for you to know that as much as I want you to be fervent in your faith and I want you to dig in and be devoted to the Lord and run hard after him, I want you to know that running hard after the Lord isn't what makes you right with God. Right? Because sometimes it's easy to say, I got to read so many passages in the Bible and we're not even thinking about whether we meet with God when we read. It's just like, I got to get this done because I got to tally the sheet and put that on the religious scorecard to make sure I'm winning. And sometimes we think about we're growing spiritually, but we're not really growing spiritually. We just feel better because we've checked more things off on the list. And I don't want you to, I don't want you to have any kind of false growth in your life. I want you to run hard after the Lord, but not because you're trying to earn something. You already have all of the love you're ever going to get from God. He loves you unconditionally and completely. You're never going to earn another ounce of his love because he's already given it all to you. So when we run hard after the Lord, all we're running hard after is wanting to know him more. And that's completely different from wanting to earn his favor. Right? And so I want to just encourage you to lay down religion and pick up relationship. Lay down religion and pick up relationship. The next thing that I see in this passage of scripture, which I think is important for us to note, is that um, we need to make glory, and I'm going to use Wesley's term, we need to make glory our goal. I love the fact that, that in this passage of scripture, he says, I want to know Christ, I want to experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience resurrection from the dead. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying, this life is not all there is. This life's important. I don't want you to think that this life doesn't matter. Just make it to heaven. No, this life matters. What you do here matters. But I also want you to, to, to really set it as your goal to say, I want to be raised from the dead and spend every moment of eternity in the presence of God. This is really important for us. Because I think we live in a day and age where we have made everything in our lives about here and now. And as important as I think it is for us to live our faith in the here and now, I also want to remind us that there is a then and there. And you got to have both of them, right? There is a real heaven, and there is a real hell. And hell is not a place where God sends people just to punish them and be mad at them. It's because they have to pay for their sin. We all have to pay for our sin. And you can either choose the payment that Christ has provided, or you can choose to reject the payment that Christ has provided. And if you reject that payment, you will pay for it on your own. That's what hell is. And there is a real heaven and there is a real hell. And I hope that doesn't offend you. I'm just trying to tell you the truth. 
I think if you forget those two realities, the, the life that we're living here makes less sense. I, I think it makes less sense. I think you need that concept of eternity. And I think you ought to make it your goal to spend eternity in the presence of God. Amen? This is what we are focused on. We have to make glory our goal. Paul says, I just forget what's behind, and I just press on, because I want to I want to receive that prize, right? And I think you ought to want to receive that prize. I think you ought to, you ought to want it bad enough that, that you'll do whatever it takes to pursue him in a relationship with him, so that you can know him here, and grow in relationship with him, and then spend eternity in his presence. We must make glory our goal. And so then that leaves us with this whole kind of thing. So what do we do from the moment we're justified, the moment we step into a relationship with God, and the moment we make, make it into glory? What, what do we do between here and there? And this is where I think that, that Wesley's teaching and Paul's teaching in Philippians 3 are so helpful to us. And I think that's the third thing that I want to show you from this passage, that we need to press on toward the goal. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 14, it says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I think that what Paul is saying is, guys, I, I'm saved. I, I've, I've put my faith in Jesus. My sins are forgiven. I'm made right with God. But there is a goal out there in front of me. I talked about it on Sunday, right? This whole idea of running a race and knowing where the finish line is and having an image of that finish line in, in your mind. When you're running and you're tired and you want to quit and you want to throw in the towel, you need something to motivate you to keep going. We need that in our day and age to remind ourselves there is a goal and we got to press on. Paul says, I've not attained that goal yet, so I forget what is behind me. I let all that stuff go, not because it didn't matter or wasn't important, it absolutely was, but it's behind me, and I'm headed to the future. So I'm going to press on. I'm going to run to the end of the race, and this is what we're called to do. And, and as we close this time tonight, I'm going to ask the band to join me up here on stage and I want to just remind us of how we journey. How do we press on toward the goal? How do we keep growing and being transformed and become the people that God wants us to be? It really comes down, I think, to, to opening ourselves up to the grace of God. It's not your work. We've said that, right? It's not your work. You can't earn it. You can't do something to, to make God favor you to make God love you more, to make God bless you more. And if people try to tell you that you can, they're not telling you the truth. God loves you as much as he's going to love you, and that's with everything he's got. Can't earn another ounce of his love. But what you do need in this life is his grace. He's already loved you with everything he can love you with, but what you need in your life now is his power and his work to change you and transform you. John Wesley talked a lot about this. He, he called these things the means of grace. 
We practiced one of them tonight when we celebrated communion. We came forward and we took a piece of the bread and we dipped it in the cup and we received those elements. And that's more than just a way to remember that Jesus died for us. We, we remember that he died for us when we do that. But it's more than that. It's actually a means of grace. It's, it's like a channel where God has said, I will meet you there. And when you're there, I will pour out grace in your life. The old timers, people like Ben, they, they, would, they would say things like this. They would say, you have to get under the spout where the glory runs out. Now, to us, that might sound a little weird, maybe even just a little bit cheesy, but it's 100% true that there are places in this world where God has said to us, I will meet you there. And if you'll go there, I will pour out grace in your life. And when you're there in that place and grace is poured out, you'll be changed. And you'll grow more and more to be like Jesus. And your life will begin to be transformed into holiness. And you'll actually begin to reflect the character of God. It won't maybe happen overnight. It might not happen tomorrow. And it might not happen in this second. But if you put yourself in those places where grace is poured out, you will be changed. Because you can't change yourself, only the grace of God can change you. But you got to show up. You got to get under the spout where the glory runs out. And so when we come to places like communion, that's a practice where God has said, I'll meet you there. And when you open your Bible and you read the scriptures, that's a place where God says, I'll, I'll meet you there. I promise. And when you, when you give yourself to prayer and you make yourself present to the one who is always present with you, God says, I'll meet you there. I'll pour out grace in your life. And when you pull away from the noise and the busyness of this world and you find a silent place to just be in the presence of God, God says, I'll meet you there. And I'll pour out grace. I want to just invite you in this season of our church and in this season that we are in in our world to meet God in those places. Because at the end of it all, God is simply wanting to have a relationship with you. He's not interested in you checking things off a list to say, well, I did that, I did that, I did that, I must be good. No, God just saying, can we go for a walk? Could we just sit and have a conversation? Could I share what I've got in my heart for you? I mean, that's what he's doing in the word. And when we gather and worship, he's saying, just come, gather together. Don't forsake this. Even more so as you see the day approaching, because we need to encourage one another, strengthen one another, love on each other, spur one another on to love and good deeds. This is a place where God says, I, you come together with other people, I'll meet you there. Two or three, I'll meet you there. I'll pour out grace in you. I'm inviting you to be real Christians in this season. Complete devotion to God. To say like Paul, all the stuff that I might count on my tally sheet and say, look at how good I am. Just put that aside. That's just trash. And 
just make it your goal to know Christ, to share in his sufferings, and that somehow you might attain to the resurrection of the dead. So tonight, uh, we're going to close with a song, and the song is the benediction. So at the end of this song, Christian might say something like, you're sent out, but if he forgets, when the song ends, you're sent out. The song is a benediction. But before we give this benediction, I want to invite you to stand with me. And I want us to pray together tonight. And I want us to pray that the Lord would do a new work in us, making us deeply devoted to this journey of faith. That we wouldn't journey from a paradigm of religion, but we would journey in relationship. And that God would change us and make us holy as we press on to the goal. So let's pray together. God, tonight we come before you in this service. We're grateful for your word. And Lord, I pray tonight that you'll take these words, not my words, but your words, the word, and you would drive it deep into our hearts and souls. God, I pray tonight that we would come to the realization over and over and over again that it's not about me and it's not about my work. And it's not about what I've accomplished and it's not about what I've attained because what we've done in our own strength is not enough and it never will be enough and it never can be enough. We need Jesus Christ and his work. So we put our faith and our trust and our devotion upon him tonight. We just simply say we want to know you, Jesus, more and more and more. We want to press on to the goal. We want to forget what is behind, and we want to keep moving to the prize that you have called us for, the prize of being in your presence for all of eternity. So God, would you inspire in us new faith, new devotion, new commitment, but not out of a sense of religion. Lord, help us to love you so that everything we do comes from a heart built on relationships. God, for what you do in us, we're going to give you the thanks and the praise and the glory and the honor. And we pray these things tonight in Jesus' name. Let's sing this benediction together.
Yeah. 